Thanks very much, everyone. So we're in Acts chapter 4 this morning. If you were in Northern Ireland, there's lots of different words to describe being too warm, but they all relate to potatoes. So you've got baked, you've got boiled, you've got every sort of potato under the sun, sauteed as well, everything for being too hot. Anyway, we're in Acts 4 this morning. We're in verses 23 to 31. Acts 4, 23 to 31. We've been in the book of Acts for uh, quite a few weeks now. We've looked at the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. We've looked at the fact that there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And last week, Nathan um, looked at, at Acts 4 earlier in the chapter at the boldness of Peter and John and how they were compelled to preach Christ as the hope for the nations. He gave three points. There was the empirical evidence, the fact that the, the gospel is true and there's a man here stood right in front of them as evidence. Secondly, there was the authority of the Word of God. And thirdly, the testimony of grace, which Peter and John had. And that was the reason for their boldness. And this week, we're looking at verses 23 to 31. I don't have any fancy photographs from an Israel trip or anything. You're getting a plain white background this morning. Verses 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gathered against, together against the Lord against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to preach your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So our first point this morning is just from verses 23 and, and 24. They acknowledge their God. We break into this passage in verse 23, and straight after Peter and John have been questioned and threatened, and verse 23 says, on their release, Peter and John go back to their own people, their own people. After all the trouble that they've been through, after receiving a stern warning from the religious leaders, after the, the wonderful defense of the gospel that they've given, what do Peter and John want to do after all of this? If it was you or I would want to crawl into a corner with a sheet overhead and probably just be there for a day or two. What do Peter and John want to do? They want to be with their own people, the ones they love and care about the most, their brothers and sisters in Christ. The phrase on their release suggests that they didn't do anything else. They didn't go home and get washed. They didn't go home and get food. On their release, they go to their own people. Peter and John took comfort from the fact that they were in a church family. After spending two days and nights with the Lord's enemies, Peter and John wanted above anything else to spend a little time with the family of God. Now, it was a privilege for Peter and John to stand before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin of the day, those experts, 
And Peter and John did so well in their defense of the gospel. But Peter and John weren't puffed up. They didn't think themselves above their brothers and sisters. They go to their own people. So what do they do when they get there? Peter and John start by giving a blow-by-blow account of what happened. This person said that, and we responded with this. They encouraged their friends that their testimony stood up to the harshest possible scrutiny. And also that the religious leaders had recognized that they'd been with Jesus. And what did they do in response? Well, in response, the people gathered there. There are probably some apostles there, their friends, their companions. In response, at a prayer meeting, important events moved them to pray. They, they raised their voice. This was probably one person leading the congregation in prayer. In the commentaries I read, it said there's probably either one person leading them in prayer or numerous people praying one after another at successive times. Logically, if they were all praying out loud at the same time, they wouldn't have been praying the exact same words, would they? It would have been orderly. One spoke, but they all prayed in unity. It's wonderful, isn't it, that although only some, only some people spoke, they all prayed. Only some people spoke out loud. But by saying amen at the end of that prayer, they were praying in agreement. So our first point is that they acknowledge their God. They begin their prayer, sovereign Lord. In the Greek, it's just one word, despote. Is that how you say it, Steve? Despote. Okay, good. Got Steve's approval. That's a good sign. It's a word that isn't often used in the New Testament. This word despote, sovereign Lord, it's a word to describe a ruler with unchallengeable power, unquestionable power. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders of the day might utter warnings and threats to silence the church. But Peter and John realized they were subject to a higher authority. They use that word despote to acknowledge that the Christ that they serve has unquestionable power. And this is the God that they're going to follow. And then they continue their prayer in verse 24. You made the earth and the sea and everything in them. Before they even begin to think of asking God for things, they fill their minds with thoughts about the divine sovereignty of God. They remind themselves that as a people, they're different from the heathens. The heathens worship God, the gods that they created, whereas the early church realized that they had a creator God that they were worshiping. They worship the one who's from everlasting to everlasting, the one who created them, the earth and the sea from nothing. They're praising God as a sovereign ruler, as the creator, their father, and the maker of all things visible. And what's the result? What's the result of them recognizing who this God is? Well, they're refreshed because they remember the power and might of God. And they pray with confidence because this is a God that's in control. And last week, Nathan mentioned that sometimes we aren't bold enough to share our faith because our view of who God is isn't big enough. You know, that's the case with me. I'm not bold enough sometimes to share my faith because my view of who God is isn't big enough. Well, before the disciples ask God for boldness in this passage, they ask God for boldness again. And before they do that, they remind themselves who this great God is that they serve. The God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Our second point, verses 25 to 28, they pray in light of the scriptures. After reminding themselves of God's greatness, of his sovereignty, 
and power, they pray in light of what the scriptures say. The people who were gathered together quoted Psalm 2 in their prayer. If we had time, we'd look at Psalm 2 together, but they quoted Psalm 2 in their prayer. They did this because they understood that the Psalms were part of Scripture, which were the holy inspired words of God. Now notice in verse 25, it says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. This is the definition of what Scripture is and how it came into being. Even though there are many different authors, the Bible was God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, David. So scripture was Holy Spirit breathed and then written down by the author, in this case, David, and he wrote the Psalms, or a lot of them. Now the early church recognized that scripture was God-breathed and so they realized that it was important to pray scripture. Psalm 2 that they quote, it's a messianic psalm, it's a prophetic psalm. David isn't just talking about himself, he's talking about the coming Jesus. And David, who wrote Psalm 2, he's, he's quoted in, in the Acts here, Why do the kings of the earth take their stand against the anointed one? Years before it happened, David asked the question, Why do the rulers plot in vain? Why did the rulers oppose Jesus? And then in verses 27 and 28, we get the answer. Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired against Jesus, and they did exactly what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It's weird, isn't it? The group of people that opposed Jesus. Herod hated Pilate. Pilate hated Herod. The Jewish people hated the Gentiles. These were groups of people that, that clashed. They actively hated each other. They were at odds with each other. And yet they united against Christ. Why was that? Why was it all these groups who hated each other united against Christ? Because, verse 28, it gives the answer. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God knew that these people would unite against his son. And the early church gathered together to pray in light of that, recognizing that God was in control of Herod and God was in control of Pilate. They recognized that God, they recognized that the wrath of man could never operate outside God's control. These men and women praying in the early church believed that both they and their enemies were totally, absolutely, completely in the hands of God. What a wonderful way to think of the enemies of God, knowing that they can only do what God allows. <clears throat> in verse 28, if you had a New King James Version in front of you, it would say that they did whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now notice that phrase, your hand and your purpose. God's hand is there to fulfill whatever he pleases. It's there to fulfill his purpose. And God determined what would be done, and he did it. He made his son a sacrifice for sin. And here in this passage is quite clearly shown that it's futile for man to fight against God when God sees their scheming in advance. This is the creator God who made them. How foolish for people to think that they can outwit God. Isn't it a wonderful way to pray? Starting with the fact of acknowledging that you've got a sovereign God 
whose foreknowledge knows exactly what his people are going through. In fact, it's not just knowing exactly what his people are going through. It's controlling whatever his people are going through. And it gives us comfort because whatever comes your way has passed through God's hand first. He will not allow even the most wicked acts of man to result in permanent damage to his people. What a way for us to think of prayer this morning. What a great way to start the week by recognizing that when we consider our worst situations in work or life or whatever, that we have an, an absolute God who's in absolute control. Even the worst things. We serve a dependable, all-knowing God who's brought all things under his feet. He's in complete control. Now, the early church understood that they prayed to a God that was in control. And we need to understand that we pray and serve a God who's in control. Even at a time when evil seems rampant. It's easy to look at a world out there that's in chaos, and it looks like it's in chaos, and think God isn't in control. I spoke to someone during the week, it's not anyone that any one of you would know, but they were, <clears throat> they were telling me a range of conspiracy theories. Everything from the New World Order, which is going to come in next month, to weird things that they're adamant are going to happen. They said in the next month or two <clears throat> that the devil is going to be in complete control of this world. I sat and listened, and then I had to confront them. What utter foolishness. God is still in control, utter control. Even the devil is under his control, and this passage proves it. Why? To fulfill what God in his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This isn't a world out of control. It's a sin-cursed world, yes, but it's not a world out of control. God is still on the throne, and he's in complete control. And what a way for us to pray in light of God's sovereignty and power. I spoke to a non-believer just on Sunday afternoon who used the phrase, well, well, God isn't doing very much, is he? Just look at the war in Ukraine and COVID and things. Will you steep yourself in, that, in answer to that? You steep yourself in verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Our sovereign Lord guides the path of history. This isn't a passive God looking on. This is a sovereign Lord in complete control. So I challenge us this morning to acknowledge your God, to pray in light of Scripture, and to know that God's in control. <clears throat> so we've seen in the passage that the people remind themselves of God's sovereignty. They remind themselves that God is the God of revelation. You spoke through the Holy Spirit. They remind themselves in verse 26 that this is the God of history. The one who, who even Herod and Pilate did what God had commanded. They praise the God of creation, of revelation, and history. The God whose actions are summarized by the three verbs. You made, verse 24. You spoke, verse 25. And you decided, verse 28. Only now with their vision of God clear and themselves humbled before him. Were they ready to ask God for things? Let's move on to our third point. They ask God for more boldness and for miracles. Verses 29 and 30. So in view of God's sovereignty, in view of his might and power, the believers here pray a prayer that shows they weren't bothered about comfort. If it was me, I'd be praying for some rest, for some recuperation. 
But remarkably, they actually ask for things that will lead to more trouble, not less. Now remember at the start of the passage, how verse 23 started, Peter and John give that blow-by-blow account of the harsh warning that they just received from the Jewish leaders. Do the people here take any notice? Does that scare them? No. It says in verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to preach your word with great boldness. After hearing the warning that Peter and John had just received, they're not put off, they're energized to share their faith. Their prayer isn't that God would rain down fire from heaven either in judgment. Their prayer is that they might be able to share their faith with boldness. No matter what it took, these people would realize that there'd be a stigma attached. The term Christian, when it was coined, it was a derogatory term. It was an insult. These people are Christians. Look at them. Let's laugh at them. This was a group that was going to be marginalized, set apart. Did that bother them? Nope. Now, we need to look at verse 30. We're going through a passage here. And although, um, yeah, we need to look at it because it's there. And it says, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit. Holy Servant Jesus. You may disagree with what I'm about to say and that's okay. Have a chat with me afterwards about it. But I'm of the opinion that there were some signs and wonders that were unique to Pentecost and to the Apostles. I believe that there were signs and wonders performed in the early church that were there to demonstrate the appearing of the Holy Spirit. There were miracles performed by the apostles in the early church to further the cause of the gospel. In fact, performing miraculous signs and wonders was one of the criteria for being an apostle. I don't believe, I firmly believe, that we don't have apostles any longer. The criteria for an apostle was someone that had to have seen the risen Christ. And the Apostle Paul includes himself in that category because although he didn't see Jesus before his ascension, the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And secondly, I believe that because of what we read in Ephesians 2. If you've got a Bible with you, let's let's turn to Ephesians 2. I know Frank's going to probably touch on this when he comes to it in his Friday night study, if he hasn't already. But Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. A foundation of the apostles. Now, if you're building a building, you lay a foundation once. The apostles, I believe, were for the early church only. And so it follows that some of the signs and wonders performed by the apostles were for the early church only. All of that said, can we as believers pray for miracles even though the apostles aren't around? Yes. Should we pray, like the early church, that God would stretch out his hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders? Definitely. But should we look to a certain person or a certain church to perform miracles? Most definitely not. Notice what's already happened in in Acts 3. We've already looked at it in the healing of the lame man. There's a number of things about this healing of the lame man that are important. His healing was of a grave organic condition. Look as it pains to tell us that this guy was a cripple from birth. 
so that when he was healed, everyone could physically see that he'd been healed. The second thing was he was more than 40 years old. He was so disabled that he had to be carried everywhere. And thirdly, humanly speaking, the case was hopeless. Doctors couldn't do out for him. So when this man was healed, when this man was standing before the Jewish council, no one could question the healing that had just taken place. No one could dispute it. I know a man, he was chatting to me before, and um, I'm not telling you who he is, he's not in the church, and you probably wouldn't know him. But he said that God had miraculously healed his eyes. And then three days later, he was back wearing his glasses and said that God's miraculous healing had been temporary. I don't know how that works. The same man was telling me a story of a close friend of his who had passed away, actually. Very close friend. And he said that God had miraculously healed this man one day before he died. I don't know how that works. I'm not saying that to cast doubt on God's healing. I'm saying that when people claim miracles, it should hold up to the pattern in Scripture. It should hold up to scrutiny, even by the most skeptical. A situation that once was hopeless, and now God's miraculous healing has happened. One wrong man can always find a friend. And just because there's a group of people claiming a miracle doesn't make it true. But don't let that stop God. Don't let that stop you asking God to heal people. But if you claim it to be a miracle, just realize that it has to stand up to scrutiny, just like it did in Scripture. Does our God still heal? Absolutely. Has our God's power diminished? Absolutely not. Let's pray for God to heal. Pray that God would step in and perform miracles. Pray for healing for someone in the name of Jesus. But let's not obsess over this to the point where we don't actually see what God's already doing. Surely there's no greater miracle than when God raises someone who was dead in their transgression and sin and makes them alive in Christ. Someone who's translated, transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So let's pray for God to step in and save people from their sin. Let's pray to God of miracles. Just finally, point four, I'm almost finished. The early church's prayer is answered. Verse 31. The disciples prayed. And when they'd finished praying, we read in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The place where they were meeting was shaken, and their resolve, their faith, was all the more unshaken. God didn't answer with word. He answered with power. God answered prayer, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Notice that part of the answer to prayer was that they were filled with the Spirit. This wasn't a repetition of the wonder of Pentecost. There wasn't the speaking of tongues, amongst other things. But this example of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost shows that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit isn't a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It wasn't a one-off. If you're a believer sat here this morning, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. We've already looked at the early church recognizing God's sovereignty and power. But the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're a believer, should give you comfort. 
Jesus' own words in John 14, 17, talking about the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He dwells with you and will be in you. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in your heart and soul. It tells us in Ephesians 5, 8, to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be continually filled with the Spirit. By faith, we're to be filled with the Spirit. So what difference does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit make in your life? Are you praying to God for this boldness to share your faith and letting God by his Holy Spirit use you for his glory? Are you letting him do that? Am I willing to let God by his Spirit use me for his glory? Are you willing to do that? You've got the Holy Spirit living inside you. Remember that. That's a reason to use this boldness that he's going to give us. The believers prayed that God would heal, but in verse 31, there's nothing said about God's healing. But in a couple of weeks' time, when we come to Acts 5, we'll see that God answered their prayers for healing. But God also, by his Holy Spirit, came and enabled them to speak the word of God boldly. So in conclusion, the early church in this passage turned to God in a time of persecution. They found comfort in the fact that God knew beforehand what would happen and they claimed strength to carry on sharing their faith they prayed in light of scripture maybe as we go away this morning and think of applying the scripture in this passage to our own life we should simply start by getting into the habit of praying scripture one way to do that might be to to read a chapter of the bible and then reread a couple of verses and and pray scripture so if you read a couple of verses about God's sovereignty, if you're reading this passage again later at home or whatever, if you read about God's sovereignty, go back and, and then praise him for his sovereignty and ask him to help you in light of that. Pray scripture. Make it your aim to hear God's voice and meet him in his word. The early church acknowledged scripture's importance and life-transforming power. Because they had confidence in their God, they asked for boldness, despite the difficulty that it was going to bring. As we ask God for boldness, I hope you're going to ask God for boldness this morning. If you didn't do it last week, well, do it this week. Ask God for boldness. We had a whole sermon on it last week. Remember that our advocate, the Holy Spirit, is with us. He indwells us. He will give us the power he will testify as we speak the gospel. If you're afraid that you don't know what you're going to say, we'll rely on the Holy Spirit to prompt you. We don't need to convict or convince. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We can never bring anyone to faith, but God can use our testimony. Let's pray for boldness and faithfulness in sharing the good news of the gospel. And let's be like the early church believers and remember that God is faithful to answer our prayers. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we acknowledge you this morning as the God of creation, the God of history, the God of revelation, the one who spoke, who made, and decided. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we just pray that you would give us boldness to speak your word as we ought to, to give accurate testimony of your life-transforming power, and to live in light of what we've heard this morning, acknowledging your sovereignty and power. 
Bless us now as we meet round your table. In Jesus' name. Amen.